0: Welcome back, everyone. I am Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. To get you in the mood for today's podcast, I'm playing Memories. It's the first song from Mary's second album. Today's podcast explains my adventures growing up during the years before I became an outlaw. I have tried many times to understand how I landed in juvie, but cannot find the reason other than adolescent stupidity. Listen closely and tell me if you feel differently.
1: Chapter 2. Moving to California. My family left Arlington Heights, Illinois in February 1971, a year before my stint in juvie. Dad drove the car west on Highway 80, once again uprooting the family for new opportunities. In our family, moving occurred like clockwork. Every three years or so, Dad accepted a new promotion, or a new job offer, and the family packed up and moved to a new place. We moved from Markham, Illinois, to Cleveland, Ohio, to Detroit, Michigan. After that, we set up home in East Rockaway, on New York's Long Island, and then we trekked to Arlington Heights, Illinois. Although every move was exciting, causing us to anticipate new adventures, they also impacted the social structure of the family, and the way we interacted with other kids. Each change in social environment made us strangers, sometimes oddballs, to our new friends and classmates. We often dressed and spoke differently than was the norm from the current milieu. Eventually, we were accepted, and in most places became significant players within our social network. Although we often had squabbles and fights within our own family, The multiple moves helped develop a strong allegiance between the family members. Mike became my closest confidant. He was the oldest child of the family, born a year and some months before me. We shared a bedroom after I left the crib and continued to be roommates from Markham up until we moved to California, when we slept in separate bedrooms. I don't remember much about my first house I lived in, although I do recall seeing an 8mm film of Mike and I sitting in our beds wearing cowboy pajamas. There was a giant community water tank behind the house, and next to it lived a nice lady who gave us hard sugar candies when we came by. When Mom and Dad traveled to Iowa for Great Grandpa Brown's funeral, I was sent to stay at a neighbor's house four or five doors down. These people had a weather station on the wall showing how hot and humid it was. It also monitored something called barometric pressure to tell if a storm was developing. Even at a young age, I was intrigued by scientific things. We moved from Illinois to Cleveland, Ohio in the winter of my fourth year. I remember it was winter because just as soon as I opened the car door to run to the new house, I fell face first into a snowbank. I went to kindergarten in first grade and second grade in Cleveland. We lived in a semi-wooded area, and I remember there was a large frog pond down Switzer Road. On the other side of the road was a playground with swings and ladders and rotating platforms, and past that was a skate park Mike and I explored a few times looking for flying squirrels gliding from the trees. I was exposed to my first racist event and found my first girlfriend in Ohio. One afternoon, Mom yelled for us to come into the house immediately. Neighborhood phone network was abuzz with news a colored man was seen sitting on a bench at the playground. So Mom, like the rest of the concerned mothers on Switzer Road, felt it prudent to pull her kids inside to the safety of our home. I asked her what a colored man was, thinking he had stripes of different colors on his body. Somewhat like the characters in The Wizard of Oz. I just didn't know if the stripes went up and down or side to side. Linda went to the same school as I did, but it wasn't love at first sight. Being in first grade, we were quite busy on our academic studies and found little time to converse, except on the bus. She lived further from school than I did and always sat up front in the seat behind the driver. By the time the bus stopped for me and Mike, only the seats in the back were available. That was okay at first because we could watch Mom waving goodbye to us from the middle of the black exhaust cloud. Those buses belched out on these pre-EPA days. Then one morning, as I walked up the bus steps, Linda looked up at me and said, Jimmy, sit here, next to me. I saved you a seat. She was a smart girl making a smart move. I was instantly attracted to her. Those 11 words were the beginning of joyous love affair between us. We grew inseparable. Every morning I smiled when she patted the empty spot next to her. When other kids realized we were a couple, they became relentless. Every day the bus rang out with that horrible song, Jimmy and Linda sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. The social stigma didn't worry me much. I even rode my bike to Linda's house on the weekend where we played outside and played in her family's old wooden greenhouse that no longer had any glass in the windows. The romance was short-lived, probably lasting less than 10 days. I don't recall garnering any kisses from her, but I don't remember asking for any either. We lived across the street from a wheat farmer who didn't run kids off. Jimmy, follow me, Mike exclaimed excitedly one morning. We ran to the field where the farmer had a tractor pulling a trailer, threshing wheat, and the grain was blown into the wagon by a big tube. Mike waved at the farmer who slowed down so we could climb into the back, showering us with wheat kernels. But that wasn't the end of the fun. After the wheat was threshed, the farmer used his hay baler to wrap the wheat stalks into bales. Mike and I rearranged the bales to make a fort with tunnels and passages in it. He was a good guy to let us play there. After second grade, we left Cleveland and moved to Detroit, Michigan. Once again, Mike and I shared a bedroom. We often talked way into the night, and Mom had to yell at us, sometimes many times, to be quiet and go to sleep. There were times when one of us, usually me, needed to pass gas, eliciting groans of discomfort from Mike's bed as he buried his head in the pillow, while giggles of glee and mischief spewed from my side. Although we maintain a thriving competitiveness, Mike and I became especially close when we lived in Detroit. We raced home during lunches, taking different routes. The one to get back the quickest would sit at the table acting like he was there for a long time. We rode our bicycles behind the municipal mosquito sprayer, Weaving in and out of the chemical fog spewing from the back of the truck. We climbed the cherry tree in the backyard and chewed on the ripe cherries, throwing down pits at Lady the dog, as well as our littler brothers and sisters. One morning we decided to go downtown. Walking the three city blocks up Grand River Avenue, we waited for the bus to arrive. Downtown Detroit was just under 10 miles down Grand River. We paid the 25 cent bus fare and sat down as we planned out our adventure. We decided to start with the museum. I don't remember which museum it was, but I do remember finding treasures for sale in the little shop in the basement. When I saw fake confederate currency bills, I simply had to have them. But I was running low on funds, so I asked Mikey for a loan. Big bro obliged. Then we went next door to the main Detroit library. We could check out books because mom got us library cards a few months earlier at our local branch. The first book I checked out was titled Raising Earthworms. Mikey and I decided it was time to get back home. I put my confederate currency inside one of the books so the bills would not get creased, and we made our way to the nearest bus stop. The bus pulled up, and when the driver asked us for our fares, Mikey and I looked at each other stupidly. We spent all our money, and were now poverty-stricken. Being a kind fellow, the bus driver told us not to worry. He had us sit down behind him. Soon another patron rose from her seat and paid our fare. Dad saw the book I brought home and suggested I use the daily discarded coffee grounds as earthworm media. We made a home for the worms in the sandbox. He added some night crawlers he had left over from a fishing trip, and I set up a breeding facility using the newly learned facts from my newly discovered book. The downtown library was so much bigger than our little branch, and we started making regular trips. I remember wandering down an aisle that offered row upon row of science fiction books. Then I saw them the complete collection, all of them, of Isaac Asimov's astronomy books. Barely able to contain myself, I immediately gathered his book on Mercury, then one about Venus. I pulled the Mars book off the shelf and then added Jupiter and Saturn to my collection. I was in fifth grade and these books were unwieldy and came up to my chin. I walked the collection to the checkout, presented my library card, and took temporary possession of these literary treasures. In the middle of 6th grade, we all moved again, this time to East Rockaway on New York's Long Island. We lived right across the street from a high school, and Mike and I began exploring the new digs. Mom encouraged me to try out for evening swim classes at the high school. So I started the first of countless laps, swimming up and down a pool, in between lies outlined by buoys and ropes. Mom also suggested Mike and I take a chemistry class during the summer. It was open to young people who were not yet in high school. The class setting was a typical laboratory, which had lab tables with gas spigots for Bunsen burners as well as glass beakers and beaker holders to help combine different chemicals to see how to make new substances. One of the coolest experiments we performed was to heat up an orange powder called mercuric oxide. The heat drove the oxygen out of the chemical, causing it to liquefy to quicksilver. We didn't know what to do with the silvery liquid product, but I was very impressed by the chemical change that occurred just from adding heat to a compound Mike figured out how to make gunpowder and soon we began smuggling chemistry compounds and hardware back home across the street we turned the third-story attic of our 1920s era house into a lab Mike also showed Rob the next brother in line how to make gunpowder and soon we were shooting homemade rockets out of the front window of the attic during one batch making experience Rob put too much effort on the mortar and pestle he was using to grind the saltpeter causing it to ignite spontaneously. The gunpowder immediately flamed up high, filling the attic with obnoxious black smoke. Open the windows, Rob yelled, as he tried to extinguish the flame. Mike ran to the front, I went to the back, pushing the windows wide open. Then we decided it was time to abandon ship. We ran headlong down the steep attic stairs, down the second floor stairs, and down the concrete steps of the front porch. Once outside, we could see the smoke was pouring out both front and back attic windows. The commotion got mom's attention, and then she discovered our clandestine chemistry lab. She told us we must return the equipment we borrowed from the high school. That evening, we placed five paper bags containing chemicals and lab equipment underneath a window of the high school lab. It was in New York that Mike and I decided we needed more income, so we signed up for different paper delivery routes. I delivered Newsday, and Mike was in charge of another paper. When Christmas morning came, Newsday did not publish on Christmas, so I had a day off. My day off was short-lived when Mom woke me up to tell me Mike needed help with his deliveries. Fresh snow had fallen and many of the roads hadn't yet been plowed. Still, Mike's delivery manager had somehow managed to drop off a stack of papers that needed to be sent out. And Mom felt Mike needed help. Together we placed the newspapers into a red wagon and pushed the cart on top of the snow. We delivered the papers in an eerie silence. When snow falls at a fast pace and there is no traffic, a quiet descends upon the immediate surroundings. The only noise I heard was the grunting exerted by two kids as we delivered the newspaper to Mike's customers. As we were heading home, Mike decided to buy us a treat. Going into a delicatessen, he brought out chocolate-covered cherries, which we ate while we pushed the empty wagon back home. We spent just over a year in New York and then dad once again uprooted us to Arlington Heights, Illinois, where we would begin yet another chapter of our lives in a new location. The three years I spent in Illinois brought me through junior high and into my sophomore year of high school. During that time, Mike and I became significant players in the local Boy Scout troop. Mike became an assistant scoutmaster, I was senior patrol leader, and soon we were running many of the activities. The year we became Eagle Scouts was the summer we landed on the moon, and it was time to make a new move as a family. This time it was a big one, all the way to Southern California. The family, the family dog, And the family luggage were all once again loaded into the family station wagon and we headed west. The first night we slept at Grandma Fisher's home in Des Moines, Iowa. It was below freezing that night and we never ventured outside of Grandma's house. The next morning, Dad loaded the luggage into the carrier on the car's roof and we continued our westward hoed journey. Tim was the baby of the family. He turned five years old just three days before we left on our SoCal trip. He had a Fort Cherokee set up that included numerous action figures of soldiers and cowboys and Indians as well as a plastic fort to separate the good guys from the bad guys. Tim decided to bring the present along with us to keep it safe from the movers, watching carefully as Dad placed the new box into the luggage carrier on top of the car. As the car headed west toward the Rocky Mountains, winds from the mountains picked up blowing hard and straight right at the car. Tim was sitting way in the back of the station wagon. He had a full view of the road behind. Suddenly, the winds lifted the carrier up above the car, and it opened wide as it flew off the car, spewing luggage along the route. Tim got to see all of his soldiers and cowboys and Indians fly away. Dad stopped to gather up what luggage was not ruined, but the action figures were strewn all along the highway for a mile or so behind us, and could not be retrieved. Tim later told me this was one of the most traumatic experiences he remembered from his childhood. Dad took a detour into the next town to buy a new carrier, and then we continued driving west. It was dark and cold when we found a motel in Cheyenne, Wyoming. So we all scurried as quickly as possible into our respective rooms. We were a family of nine people and needed two rooms and four beds to accommodate everyone. Mike and I took a bed in one room, with brothers Rick and Rob filling the other bed. Tim, the youngest, stayed in the second room with Mom and Dad, along with the two girls, Jacqueline and Carol. I woke up early the next morning and decided to go for a walk. I knew to put on my winter coat as well as my scarf before venturing outside. The wind was harsh and biting and the surroundings were bleak and uninviting. As I walked around the end of the motel, I turned my head into the wind and saw a gigantic purple-colored mountain range that encompassed my entire vision from left to right and took up one-third of the height of the sky. Although familiar with the vast openness of the Great Lakes, I had never before seen such a broad majestic landscape. Both the Atlantic Ocean around Long Island, New York, and the windswept Great Lakes always communicated a sense of loneliness to me. These mountains affected me differently, enlivening a sense of curiosity in me as if they were beckoning me to explore them. Once the family had eaten breakfast and packed the car, we headed west into the mountains. Life on the road with seven kids was seldom peaceful. The entire family rarely went anywhere together except for vacations and our household moves every three years or so. Gas stops were chaos. Dad would go in and arrange the gas sale and come out and pump the gas. The rest of us would pile out of the car as quickly as possible. One of the boys was assigned to take Lady, our pet dog, out to the grass. The remaining boys would have a running match to get to the bathroom first. The winner would lock the bathroom door and take forever to pee. Carol and Jackie would follow Mom to the girls' bathroom. Once everyone was relieved, we would head back to the car to find our seats, inevitably causing an earth-shattering fight each time. Our car was a Mercury station wagon, and the best seats were the window seats. The next preferred spot was in between the window seats. The least preferred place was way in the back, where no one wanted to go. The back seats faced each other and had stuff stowed between and under the seats. Whenever one of the kids was unhappy with their seat, bickering and complaining would begin. Once everyone accepted their seat fate, the car games began. We would go through the alphabet looking for the next letter on license plates or road signs and billboards. The letters Y, Z, and Q were always hard to find. From time to time, we sang songs. Mom's favorite was 99 bottles of beer on the wall, probably because it was a long one. Personally, I felt the song was dorky. After the games and songs, with the constant rhythm of the wheels on the highway, naps began. These quiet interludes were often interrupted with the complaints of Mom, he, she is touching me, and continued until sleep overcame everyone. This cycle played itself over and over again until Mom and Dad decided to make some changes. While they didn't feel it was so at the time, my parents were clever. After two days of squabbling after every gas stop, we were assigned seating places. Mike and I had the window seats because we were the oldest. The girls were in between us, and Rick Rob, and Tim were put back in the nosebleed section. This arrangement allowed peace to descend upon the vehicle quickly after our gas fill-ups were finished, and the ignition was turned on. After one particular stop, this newfound peace didn't last more than ten minutes. Carol wanted to know where Jackie was, as Jackie usually sat next to her. Let's face it, there's not much room to hide from view in a car, and after conducting a thorough search, the kids determined Jackie was not present. We started to tell Dad we left Jackie behind. Evidently, he thought we hid Jackie somewhere and were lying. Shut up and be quiet, was what he told us. It wasn't until the kids started crying and sobbing that Dad realized we were not pulling a prank, we were indeed missing a child. He turned the car around and drove 20 minutes back to the gas station. There stood Jackie, waiting inside with a woman who was holding her hand trying to comfort our forgotten sister. We spent the third night at a motel in Salt Lake City, Utah. The next morning, I took Lady out for a walk. The motel was in downtown Salt Lake, and as I turned a corner my eyes were drawn skyward to six steeples on top of a gothic-looking structure. A wall surrounded this castle, and as I began walking along the wall, I came across a plaque declaring the structure to be the Salt Lake Temple of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Later in the day as we headed south on Highway I-15 to Las Vegas, I asked my dad about the castle. He told me it was a Mormon church. We were driving through the valleys of Utah, the road was well paved, and the hills were numerous and rolling. I suspect Dad was feeling a Western freedom moment and decided to take advantage of the freshly manicured asphalt, slowly pushing on the accelerator until a Utah patrol car clocked him traveling quite fast. Apparently his speed was so much past the limit, he could not just accept the ticket and mail in the penalty. And, as it was the weekend, the courts were not open, yet Dad was anxious to get on with the trip to our new home. He had to find the county judge and settle the matter immediately. Driving a short way into town, he stopped in front of a brick house, left all of us in the car, and walked up a concrete path that divided a green lawn. He knocked on the door, it opened, and Dad went inside. After a while, he came back out, got in the car, and we renewed our drive south. We finally entered Las Vegas, found our hotel, and went to bed shortly after dinner. I woke up early the next day and opened the hotel door sunlight rushed into the room and i felt a warm gust of wind as i stepped out through the threshold it was exhilarating i ran back and woke mike up we donned our winter coats and headed out quickly realizing we didn't need the coats we briefly explored a small part of las vegas before rejoining the family for breakfast we ate lunch in barstow that day and continued to southern california the place was amazing and we were all thrilled the six-lane highways palm trees, blooming flowers, and warm weather in the middle of winter were all new to me. We pulled up in front of our newly built home in Fountain Valley, after dark. Mom showed us our bedrooms and we bedded down on the freshly carpeted floors with the pillows and sleeping bags we brought along. The furniture wasn't there yet, but I didn't care a whit. This adventure was enough to satisfy me better no bed. This was cool. It was like we were in a different country. The next morning after breakfast, Mike and I explored the neighborhood together. Many of our homes were still under construction and we didn't run into anyone else. We went to check out the Greenbrook Clubhouse. Greenbrook was the name of our subdivision. There were pool tables, chairs and tables, and an outdoor swimming pool. This is like having our own private country club, I whispered to Mike. Monday must have been a school holiday and we found some girls sunning themselves in bikini swimsuits around the pool. It was about 11 a.m. and the temperature was already above 80 degrees. Bonnie, Sandy, and Holly soon became close friends. Because the Greenbrook subdivision was newly built, everyone was a new transfer. This meant there was not a previous social code in effect, and this time Mike and I fit right in. A unique experience for us. Having our fill of the clubhouse scene, Mike and I walked through a strawberry field to buy ice cream at Thrifty Drug Store for five cents a scoop. It was usually warm and bright, a vast departure from the Midwest winter we just left. There was no thought of our recently worn winter jackets as Mike and I discussed the glories of our new home in California. I was still used to the Midwest time zone, and I went to bed before 9pm that Monday, February 8, 1971. A few seconds after 6, the next morning, I was abruptly awakened by the Silmar earthquake, which centered in the San Fernando Valley. The house started to rumble and shook back and forth. I stood in my moving doorway holding both hands to the jam and called out to the family. Earth shaking was not something I bargained for. I put my pants on, ran down the stairs, and bolted through the front door. Peering down the street, I saw the asphalt road and concrete sidewalk lift up in a traveling wave. As a wave hit a street light, it caused the post to dip down at a 45 degree angle, losing half its height as it did so. When the wave passed, the street light resumed its vertical stance. I stood in the street for a moment, stunned, then ran back into the house. As is the case after any trembler, people immediately get together and talk about the event. Our family did the same. Mike and I agree that living in California was going to be a lot different than living in Chicago. End of chapter.
0: Thanks, Brian Ortiz, for lending me your voice to my narrative. You bring my memories to life. Here's a song called On the Lonely Streets Again. It's composed by Joe Gilia, one of the members of Liener, Lunker, and Betsy, Mary's earliest group. It was recorded live at the Thunderhead End in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which is why you hear the band chatter in the beginning.
2: It's a song Joe wrote. Here I streets again. I don't know where I'm going and I'm not sure where I've been. My bags are packed and my guitar's in my hand. I got a bedroll on my back and my thumb up in the wind. Stomach's kind of empty, my feet could use some rest. No No one will pick pick me up, cause they they don't like the way I'm dressed. I know in that next town, they've got to have a bar. And I'll sing there for a couple of weeks, then hit the road. Once more. Here I am on the lonely streets again I don't know where I'm going And I'm not sure where I've been My bags are packed And the guitar's in my hand I got a bedcloth on my back And in the wind. I had it go for every song I've sung And every time I've tried to please While people sat there drunk Every now and then I know I'll reach somebody's heart And I'll sing my songs for them alone And then hit the road Once more And here I am on the lonely streets again. I don't know where I'm going, and I'm not sure where I've been. My bags are packed, and my guitar's in my hand. I got a bedroll on my back, and my thumb up in the wind.
0: Thank you, Joe, Rick, and Mary. Your songs quicken my focus, warm my heart, and bring a smile to my face. And thank you, folks, for listening. You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. I've included pictures, too. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick my books, and click on Fear of Failure. Then you can follow the story as you listen to the blog. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set, or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. Tune in next week to follow more tales of the soon-to-be ADHD veterinarian. Thanks for listening.